The beauty of Christmas is our king. And make no mistake, this baby in the manger is a king. Now, the concept of a king is mostly foreign to us, right? We live in a democratic republic where the power is in the hands of people. We don't need a king. We came to America to, came to, America to get rid of a king, right? And yet, we do need a king. And all of us have a king. The beauty of Christmas is our king. Open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 52 this morning. God's people, the nation of Israel, they followed some lousy kings. God had wanted to be their leader. I will be your king, he said. But the people wanted a human king on the throne, somebody they could see. They wanted to be like the nations around them, so God let them have their way. He gave them a man on the throne, a human king, and... I guess some of those kings were decent, but by and large, these men were failures. These kings led the people astray, and so God promised to send someone, a good king, to save and rescue and deliver his people. And so they waited for hundreds of years for this promised good king to come, the Messiah. The Greek word for Messiah is Christ. It means anointed one. Kings were anointed so when we say Jesus Christ, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It means Jesus Messiah. Jesus, the long-awaited king from God who's come to save his people. And so when we celebrate Christmas, Christmas, we celebrate Kingmas. We celebrate the coming of a good king to lead us. The beauty of Christmas is our king. And yet when this king came, most people missed him because he wasn't what they expected because this king didn't come to kill but to die. He wasn't what they wanted, but he was exactly what they needed. He's a servant king, a good king. The beauty of Christmas is our king on a cross. Let's take a look at the unique beauty of our crucified king today in Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. Follow along with me, chapter 52, verses 13 through 15. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they've not heard, they will understand. This is not going to sound like your typical Christmas sermon today, because we're going to be talking about the suffering of our servant king. And it'll be a little heavy, but I think that that will save us from mere Christmas sentimentality this year. Because the first Christmas was not just a day of warm, fuzzy feelings. Because that baby was born to die. The child in the manger was destined for a cross. So first, our servant king is triumphant, yet appalling. Triumphant, yet appalling. That word appalled is a very strong word. We are appalled when we look at him because this servant of God has been beaten to a bloody pulp. He has been so disfigured by violence and torture that he doesn't even look human anymore. 
He's undergone the appalling gore of crucifixion. And make no mistake, crucifixion is appallingly gory. When the time for execution came, the condemned man would carry the horizontal crossbeam to the site of his death. And then they would fasten him to that horizontal beam. In Jesus' case, he was nailed there. Now, a nail through the hands would probably just rip right through. So more than likely, a nail through the bones of the wrist. That'll hold. And then they would hoist the horizontal beam up and they'd mount it to the vertical beam that was already there in the ground. Most crosses were not much taller than a man. Can you imagine the humiliation? Because most people were crucified naked. So you're nearly eye level with the people walking by you on the road, naked, dying. Every part of this execution was designed to keep you conscious and humiliated and suffering a slow, agonizing, excruciating death. Your body was undergoing such intolerable pain that the prospect of death itself was a delicious release. And yet, you couldn't die. So there Jesus hung. His arms fatigued, waves of cramps knotting his muscles in relentless pain, hanging by his arms like that, his pectoral muscles would become paralyzed. He couldn't breathe. And so he'd have to lift himself up to catch a breath, the flesh of his shredded back tearing as it rubs up and down against the rough timber behind him. Hours of this limitless pain, consistent partial asphyxiation. He's suffocating until finally he is too weak to lift himself to catch a breath, and he does suffocate. Appalling. To the world, though, this was just another run-of-the-mill execution of a law-breaking peasant. Jesus' death was an obscure one, like a migrant worker who suffocates in a freight container, or a child who drowns in a well in West Africa, or a beggar on the streets of India who's backed over by a bus. It's not that big of a deal in the world's eyes. In his death, Jesus is appalling. And above his head hangs a sign, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. They meant it as a mockery, but it was true. He was king, an appalling king. And yet simultaneously, as he hangs on the cross, he is both appalling and triumphant. As he hangs there on the cross, he triumphantly takes all of the sin that defaces his creation and he's letting it do its worst to him. He's taking all of the darkest corners of the planet, all of the world's cruelty and evil and hatred and violence and mockery, all the bitterness and anger of the world is unleashed on Jesus. All of the sin that you commit thinking that nobody will ever know it, Jesus knew it and he willingly took it upon himself and he bore it to the cross. It's appalling. I'm appalled. All the gore and the violence of my foolishness, my failure, my sin, your sin, is why Jesus had to die. You see, sin means that something has to die. The wages of sin is death, Paul writes. So God allowed the people to make sacrifices for their sin. Animals died so that people didn't have to. And it was appalling, but it allowed bloody sinners like us to be in fellowship with a holy God again. God passed over their sins for a while until they sinned again, and it was time for the next sacrifice. The most significant sacrifice of all came at the annual Passover feast. 
During that week, every Jewish family would sacrifice a, a lamb. And the Jewish historian Josephus says that as many as 200,000 animals were sacrificed on that week alone. Can you imagine the rivers of blood and guts? Any Jew in Jerusalem at Passover could see the priests covered in blood, slaughtering animal after animal. They'd hear the cries of those dying creatures. They'd see the red river of warm lifeblood flowing out of the city. And they would know that sin is not a little thing. Sin is a bloody violent affair. It's appalling. And when Jesus took on our sin, he was appalling. And yet he was triumphant. Isaiah says, like we just read, that he suffers like that so that he can sprinkle many nations. The sprinkling of the blood of the sacrifice was an act of purification, of atonement. So he sprinkles us to purify us in the sight of God. And this act is so amazing, Isaiah says, that the kings of the nations, the Gentiles, people like us, are left speechless because of the salvation that this suffering makes available to them and to us. And the Romans and the Jews and the devil himself looked at the cross and they saw the defeat of Jesus. But we look at the cross and we see his triumph because we know that through his suffering, our sins are atoned for. He is triumphant, yet appalling. The beauty of Christmas is our king on a cross. Follow along with me, chapter 53, verses 1 through 3. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised. And we held him in low esteem. He is ordinary, yet astounding. When Isaiah talks here about the arm of the Lord, the people knew what that meant. The arm of the Lord was God rolling up his sleeves and flexing. The arm of the Lord meant God delivering his people with judgment and blood. God says to the Israelites when they are enslaved in Egypt, Exodus chapter 6 verse 6, he says, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And then right after this, boom, the ten plagues happen. And the people are released. And, and, and the Red Sea is parted. And they walk through on dry land. And the water caves back. And the whole Egyptian army drowns. That's the arm of the Lord. And so... In Isaiah chapter 52, verse 10, Isaiah promises deliverance for the people by saying, The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. And the people hear this, and they think that God is about to put the beat down on Israel's enemies, that the war to end all wars is about to break loose. And so when we get to Isaiah 53... And we see that the arm of the Lord being revealed actually just means this tender shoot, this little twig growing out of dry ground. That's pretty surprising. Honestly, it's pretty unimpressive and ordinary sounding. And most of the people missed the arm of the Lord. 
Most of the people missed the work that God was doing through Jesus because he was ordinary. Isaiah says, this guy is like a person you hide your face from and pretend that you haven't seen. Like the toothless addict on the street corner with the cardboard sign asking for your money. Yeah, he's like that guy. Despised. He didn't have looks or money or connections or credentials. He was unimpressive. This king looked weak. The people saw him and they said, this guy, isn't that Joseph's son? Yeah, I changed his diapers when he was a kid. He wasn't even that good at playing sticks and rocks on the street growing up. He was ordinary. During Isaiah's day, the people of God are being threatened by foreign armies, and they feel like they need a strong and cruel and mighty king to protect them. And so God promises a king to come, someone who will protect and deliver his people. But this king is a child. I don't know about you, but if I'm in a fight, I don't necessarily want a child coming to help me. They wanted the arm of the Lord. They wanted plagues and floods and blood and guts and judgment and destruction. And yet, as God says to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, my power is made perfect in weakness. Well, the arm of the Lord did show up in Jesus. And when it did, destruction and blood and judgment were still there. But instead of being inflicted by the king on God's enemies, it was inflicted by God's enemies on the king. Oh, God's arm was bared, all right, but God's fight was not with sinners, but with sin itself. And Jesus took the hit. Jesus is both the fist of God and the punching bag. That is astounding. He's a servant king. Now, that would have sounded like an oxymoron to the Jews. You guys know what an oxymoron is, right? It's a phrase that is inherently contradictory. Uh, Something like same difference or jumbo shrimp or awfully good or uh, airline food, no such thing. Or Microsoft works, nope, not going to happen, okay? Oxymorons. (laughs) And the people would have heard servant king and they would have thought that's an oxymoron. What kind of a king would be a servant And yet Jesus said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we follow our servant king's example of humble service. And people are probably going to look at us like they looked at Jesus. They may look at us and say, well, they're kind of ordinary, even a little odd, a little weird, a little strange. They have no beauty or majesty to attract us to them. And they're probably right. (laughs) Most of the Christian life is ordinary. You don't see wow kinds of things every day. Most of the time it's ordinary tasks with ordinary people, cleaning up after the kids, serving your spouse quietly, faithfully, giving a ride to somebody who needs it, being here and serving when you have the chance, sending an encouraging note to somebody, pretty ordinary And yet when we serve as Jesus did, in ordinary ways, God takes those ordinary acts of service and he achieves astounding results. The beauty of Christmas is our king on a cross. Verses 4 through 6. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God 
stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He is sent, yet voluntary. We've all followed the wrong people at some point, haven't we? Uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 says of Jesus that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's us. Isaiah says it like this. We just read it. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. You know, being compared to sheep is not a very flattering comparison. Sheep are dumb creatures. I read an article recently about a group of shepherds in Turkey. And these shepherds were sitting around one day uh, having their breakfast together while their combined flock of 1,500 sheep just meandered around. When all of a sudden, inexplicably, for no reason, one sheep meanders over to the edge of a cliff, looks down, and jumps off to his death. This was sheep suicide. Okay, sheep are dumb creatures. But then, some of the other sheep must have seen this guy do it and thought, hey, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> And I'm not making this up. One by one, all 1,500 sheep walk over and jump off the edge of the cliff. You could really say they had the wool pulled over their eyes. <laughs> and I'm not making this up. The crazy thing about this story is, though, that the only the first 450 sheep died because after that, there's this big fluffy pillow that they all just kind of glance on. Boing. It's a true story. <laughs> we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. That's us, folks. Following lousy leaders, doing whatever we want to do, and it ends always in our demise. And so God sent Jesus, the good shepherd, to us. And Jesus, coming down to us lost sheep and dying for us, it wasn't unintentional. It wasn't even a plan B on God's part. No, God planned this from the very beginning. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, that this was God's plan before the beginning of time. Isaiah says later in verse 10, we'll read it, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And Jesus submitted to the Father's plan in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was sent and yet, he was also voluntary. Uh, Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 18, about his life, he says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Jesus is not playing the victim here. You cannot make him die. He dies because he chooses to. Jesus' death was not a horrible accident. The Father sent him, and Jesus willingly went. This text here, Isaiah chapters 52 and 53, you know that Jesus would have read this. Can you imagine what he must have been thinking, reading this text, knowing that it was about him as he grew up, knowing that this is what he was headed for? Can you imagine Jesus as he created the world, sculpting the hill on which he was to die and planting the tree 
that the cross would be made out of, that his body would hang from. Jesus went to his death intentionally. And when they laid him on the cross and they pinned down his arms and spread out his hands to receive the nail, you understand that this is the hand that calmed the storm. This is the hand that played with children, that healed the lepers, that brought the dead to life. He could have stopped it. And yet he didn't. What in the world is strong enough to bind the limbs of the maker of the universe to a cross? What is there that's strong enough to hold down the one who created the stars? A Roman soldier? Nails? Chains, maybe? No. Nothing but obedience to his father and love for you. He was sent, and yet voluntary. The beauty of Christmas is our king on a cross. Verses 7 through 9. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he'd done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He is innocent yet convicted. That Passover week in Jerusalem, all of Jesus' enemies were conspiring to do to Jesus the man what King Herod had tried and failed to do to Jesus the little child. They wanted him dead. And so he was convicted by a kangaroo court. The trial that found Jesus guilty was illegal. It was a bogus conviction. He was innocent. He could have protested and stopped it. And yet, through it all, Jesus was quiet. Now, I don't know about you, but when people are accusing me of anything, especially if I'm innocent, I am anything but quiet. (laughs) And if anyone was ever innocent, it was Jesus. And yet, he didn't defend himself against his accusers. He was silent. He could have called thousands of angels to defend him. The legions of heaven were at his beck and call, and yet he kept his mouth shut. He was innocent and yet convicted, and he was silent that night. So let's rewind back to Christmas, back to the manger. You all have seen nativity scenes around, right? We've seen a lot of them for several weeks now, full of shepherds and sheep. Well, back in Luke chapter 2, where we read the birth narrative of Jesus, of the 20 verses that tell us the story of that night, 12 of them have to do with sheep or their shepherds. That's over half. So why the focus on sheep? Well, why do people raise sheep anyway? Raise sheep for their wool or, I guess, for their meat, if you like Greek food, something like that. But some scholars tell us, actually most scholars agree, that the sheep in and around Bethlehem were used for a specific purpose. You see, Bethlehem is just a few miles from Jerusalem, and the temple is in Jerusalem. And what happens at the temple? Sacrifices. So this is where the flocks near Bethlehem come into play. Many of these sheep likely belonged to the priests themselves to be used in the various sacrifices at the temple. Which means that the male lambs born on the hills of Bethlehem really had just one purpose. They were born to die. 
born to spill their blood on the altar in Jerusalem for the sins of the people. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? Almost poetic, isn't it? Jesus was the innocent, perfect, spotless Passover lamb slaughtered on behalf of undeserving people like us, dying so that God could pass over not just the sins of a nation, but of the whole world. We just read it. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. He's innocent, yet convicted. And when the people were waiting for their king, their Messiah, they wanted a king who would fight A king who would rebel and lead his people in a revolution to make Israel great again. And yet, this king's solution to the cruelty and the oppression of the world is not just to be more cruel and oppressive, but to take that cruelty and oppression onto himself in sacrificial love. He willingly became a victim of injustice. He is innocent and yet convicted. And some of you today are victims of injustice. Maybe you've been abused, swindled, lied to, cheated on, mistreated at work. Well, Jesus has been there. He knows. And some of you, when you go through hard times, are tempted to get mad at God. Why is my life hard, you want to ask? Because maybe you still think that that God is just your divine dispenser of good times. (laughs) But our God is a God who sometimes calls us to endure suffering, as he did, because our God himself is a victim of pain and injustice. And he's the only pure victim of injustice. He's the only one who deserved to never suffer. In the midst of your suffering, he sees you. He knows your pain, and he's with you, and he will bring you through it to a resurrection just like he did to Jesus. And we will sing like the angels do to our crucified king, innocent yet convicted, the words of Revelation chapter 5, verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. The beauty of Christmas is our king on a cross. Verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered among the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He is vicarious, yet satisfied. Vicarious. Now, that is a big word. Vicarious. It means that when Jesus suffered... He was suffering for us. It was substitution. He substituted himself and took our place, living the life we should have lived and then dying the death that we should have died. My dad's a preacher. And one time my dad was uh, 
teaching on Christ's substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. And he talked about how proud he would be if one of his children stepped up and took the punishment for something that another one of his children had done. Can you see where this story is headed? <laughs> so one day, not long after that, I was in trouble. I, as per usual, I was probably picking on my sister or something. That was about par for the course. And my dad is getting ready to spank me. And then, all of a sudden, seeing an opportunity to become the favorite child, my little sister sweeps in. She says, no, dad, spank me instead. <laughs> it was dramatic, but it was a beautiful gospel moment, okay? <laughs> Until my dad says, no, he's going to get what he deserves. And just, you know, he wailed on me. <laughs> Jesus Christ suffered vicariously, taking our place. By my count, at least 15 times, Jesus' vicarious sacrifice for us is mentioned in this passage. Just look at the contrast of experiences in verses 4 and 5 alone. Our pain, he took it up. Our suffering, he bore it. Our transgressions, he was pierced for them. Our, iniqu our iniquities, he was crushed for them. Our peace comes from his punishment. And we are healed because of his wounds. Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, suffered in your place. He experienced betrayal so that we could experience faithfulness. He stood trial alone so that we could have an advocate. He endured mockery so that we could know dignity. He was condemned so that we could be set free. He was crowned with thorns so that we could be crowned with gold. He suffered thirst so that we could have the living water. He was forsaken by the Father so that we could be welcomed by the Father. And he shed his crimson blood so that we could be washed in it as white as snow. His heart was pierced so that ours could be patched up. And he was put in the grave so that the grave could not hold us. And he was crowned king in a coronation at the Capitol on a cross with a crown of thorns. The beauty of Christmas... Is our king on a cross. His suffering was vicarious. And he is satisfied because it was effective. Because of his death, we now live. And so does he. He suffered for us and he was made low. But then he came to life. And now he's lifted high, alive, and he is satisfied. And we live now united as a people who are washed in the blood of the Lamb. And we come together today in grateful worship because Christmas is not just about a baby in a manger. It's about that man on the cross. So I want to challenge you this Christmas. I hope you'll read the Christmas story with your family. Luke chapter 2, Matthew chapters 1 and 2. I hope you'll read it with them. But maybe you could also read Isaiah chapters 52 and 53 with them. Because the manger makes the most sense when we look at it through the lens of the cross and the empty grave. We're going to come now in our service and we're going to take communion as an act of worship to our crucified king, thanking him for his death, rejoicing in his life now given to us, and eagerly awaiting his return as we partake in his body and blood. The beauty of Christmas is our king on a cross. Let's sing.